Hey. What's up? What's up, everybody? What's up, Mike? Up here in Julian, enjoying the, the nice, cool air. Enjoying some chamomile, yeah. some co-chamomiles. Let's just jump right in. So Corey and I did a podcast yesterday and asked questions and then weren't able to get to them. So now they're for us. All right. Okay, so interestingly, it's a very technical question from my my buddy old pal from Biola, Angel Ramirez Jr. So that's at a, a Ramirez dot junior. How do you go from having an okay studio to a professional studio? In parentheses, how do you go about buying gear in the beginning of your career since gear is expensive? PS, you two rock. So me and Corey rock. Yeah, okay. It's still the jury's out <laughs> whether or not you rock. The distinction there. So this is an interesting question because I'll feel guilty if I'm if I mention a bunch of expensive gear because of what you said, but you mentioned going from an okay studio to a professional studio. So there's an inevitable amount of investment you have to make. But what would be the minimum investment? When I think about that, I think about signal chain. So I would go with, um, let's look at the the whole spectrum. You have the things you're going to record and then where it's going to end up. So you have your your gear from basically microphone all the way to your software. So where do you start, where do you end up, and what's in between? And how pro can you make it and how streamlined? And I would say that Pro Tools is my go-to as the program. And then Logic is less expensive, maybe slightly less industry standard, but that's changing, I think, because it's less expensive and because of certain technological advancements. Lots of younger people over the last, I guess, five years have dove into Logic because it, Apple, I guess, owns it now. And it's become just a low-hanging fruit, I think. So a lot of people are doing stuff on that. I have a more of a layperson's answer to this question. Yeah. It's not going to be specific about what gear to buy, okay. uh, obviously. But I think um, <clears throat> the first thing I thought of when I heard the question was if, if you can tell what you've used uh-huh. in the end result, I'd say there's, there's, there's probably a... Um, a technique and a, and a procedure you want to look at that should be on your radar, like a red flag. Mm. Like if, oh, I know that preset or I know that sound, I know what that is. Um, and then yeah. ch- challenging yourself that, I guess in some way I'm, I'm trying to say is that maybe it doesn't matter after a certain point, the gear doesn't matter. It, it What more, what matters <laughs> most is, I know that's weird. That's a weird answer. And no, you can, no, you no, can poke like holes it. in all this, but, but, the end result um, has to be your intention. What sound, what aesthetic was your intention, and did you achieve it? Yeah. Then success like that. Then you've you've done what you wanted to do, and I think the doesn't matter what you use right, to get there. If the gear is in the way of you getting the sound that you want, then that's the one you take a look at. Or if it's putting such an indelible stamp on it that right. then your intention is getting watered down, or right. There's not enough of you in it. Yeah. You know, the reason why I laughed is because when I read that question, the first thing I thought of was this little joke phrase that you hear engineers say, talk about, which is like, 
it's not the tool, it's the fool. <laughs> so it's like, it's who's using the gear that matters, not what the gear is. You can use mediocre gear. Up to a certain point. Up to say. a certain point. Yeah, yeah obviously. Um, but, I mean, there are big pop records, for example, and um, that were recorded all on like making samples on, on the iPhone voice note recorder. And I've done that a few times, like just recorded things out, you know, on location and then yeah, mess think, with them a bunch. But right. I think the context could be too, that, that like if they were to re-ask the question is non-novelty. Yeah, and Some non-novelty. of that stuff is, is obviously, I mean, you can do anything, go out in, in a playground and re- record a swing set. Totally. So I would think that, you know, going with something that is somewhat industry standard, first of all, there's a reason why it became industry standard. Um, and second of all, it, it makes you more, your interactivity with other people in the industry easier. So if you're on Logic or Pro Tools, then it's more likely that you can take your session and work with somebody else. So that I would say that, go with Pro Tools or Logic. And then in terms of the concept behind the gear side is you want the best mic you can afford. You want to use great cables, which is no small thing because you can hear a difference between a crappy cable and a really good cable, especially accumulatively. So, and then your preamp is super important and then your digital conversion. And basically what I'm getting at is if you have one great signal chain into your your DAW, your digital audio workstation, Pro Tools or Logic, that's the key to the professional studio. And what gets really expensive is if you want to do, if you want to mic up drums with 10 to 12 mics. And so then you need 10 to 12 times that. But when I started out, we had one good mic, one good preamp, and two... Um, Creative two great people. levels of <laughs> two great people, two two great. Um, we had Apogee digital conversion, so we had a the first preamp we had was an Avalon seven thirty seven. It's like a tube mic pre that I still own, but I don't use it very often. And then our one, I think our one mic at the time was a Neumann TLM one hundred three, which is like a eight hundred dollar ish mic, really good condenser mic. Um. And so you have that one signal chain, so you can record acoustic guitars really well, electric guitars really well, vocals really well, anything that you want to throw one mic on. And then I would say professional studio, you can get really great drum sounds if you make your own samples with that one mic or whatever. But if you get if you have two channels of great conversion, great preamps, and two great mics, that's you can actually get great drum sounds because you just record overheads or rooms fly-in samples to lock in with the performance of the snares and kicks and toms, and you're off and running to a pretty high level. So when it comes to conversion, if I was going to get specific, I would go, you know, Apogee or Universal Audio. So, you know, the, the Apogee, what do I have here? The Duet, which is what we're recording the podcast with, that's solid conversion. It's not the best you can get, but it's really good. And then same with Universal Audio, Apollo. And if you want to get higher end, you can go like into Burl or, you know, higher end Apogee stuff. What were you going to say? I was going to say, um, I would imagine that you don't have to do everything yourself either. Like if you have a network of people, um, 
where you know drums can be done somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually uh, you know mastering and and getting that that final that final mix can be done somewhere else. Right. Imagine you could be pretty resourceful with creating a network of of people that have different totally specialties and different gear. So you absolutely you- can. And I, but I would also say that you're more empowered as a musician these days if you really try to be a jack of all trades in that sense because the the I don't know if I would say the bar has been lowered but I guess it's been raised in a sense that like before you couldn't get competitive mastering unless you really went to a mastering guy that had a mastering console the best of the best of EQs and whatever and half inch tape and all this stuff but now the plugins have gotten so good that it really is um it's the fool using it it's like how how do you really know how to get something loud and but not distorted? And do you know what a final mix sounds like? If you can do that yourself and you you know it when you hear it. So that if you do know it when you hear it, then there's gotta be you can be taught how to get that result. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, to look at professionalism or just the concept of a professional quality studio, perhaps thinking of it in terms of tiers mm-hmm. that you don't have to do all the tiers at once. Right. And you make that first tier, like you said, is the... One great signal yeah. chain. And then there's the next tier. But I mean, you can, in the meantime, while you're waiting to achieve the uh, subsequent tiers, you're networking. Yeah. Get that one one signal path that's top quality. And these mics we're using right now, I'm, there's incredibly famous right now because people... A lot of people use them for podcasts, but it's one of the most well-known mics. Apart from the SM57, which is a great like instrument mic, snare mic, guitar amp mic, this is the SM7. These are roughly 400 bucks, and it's probably the least expensive best mic ever made, I would even say. like Michael Jackson is famous for having sung on this microphone for great stuff. Um, James Hetfield of Metallica... Red Hot Chili Peppers vocals, they sound great on kick drums, they sound great on toms, they sound great on acoustic guitar, and it's a dynamic mic, it's not a condenser, so it can handle really high volume stuff, but it also you know, sounds really good in general. So this is a great mic to get. I would, If I was to suggest something specific, I would go with an SM7, a Mogami cable, into a Neve 1073 500 series, which is like, I have one back here, in a lunchbox. So those are a thousand bucks. You got 400 here, whatever, 60 bucks for the cable, thousand bucks for the mic pre, another 300 for the chassis. And then, you know, an Apogee duet or a UA Apollo. It's a lot of money, but for 3000, you'd have a professional studio where if it doesn't sound good, it's, you know, it's you, it's not the gear, which is kind of what you wanted to get to. It's that the gear is working for you transparent you know that great records have been made on that stuff so now it's like it's up to you you can't use the gear as an excuse anymore which is kind of where you want to be and then i have a follow-up question yeah so all that yes however the playback Mm -hmm. it's all that matters right what are you listening through Oh, that, listen, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. So that that is the. I think that's the probably the chink in the armor with. Yeah. So I missed gear. that. I would go with actually the headphones I'm wearing. So these are Biodynamic 770s. These are great tracking headphones. 
so for vocals or drums or whatever, and they're really good mixing headphones, and they're cheaper than the equal level in speakers. Mm. The next level up, like these are you know 170 bucks or something. These headphones, and you can, as long as you're kind of you know doing car checks and you know checking and checking on the laptop, checking on you know the iPhone headphones or whatever it is, checking in multiple places, you can learn these headphones to the point where you can get really close with stuff with the exception of maybe really low subs. And then the next level up for speakers, these Dynaudio BM5s that I don't believe they make them anymore, but you can find them used. They're a couple hundred bucks each, so four or 500 bucks a pair. And that's a really good quality speaker, especially for the price. So... Yeah, good point. Thanks for grabbing that because being able to hear correctly is huge. And what headphones do is they negate your room. And making a room sound good is super expensive. Um, you might get lucky and just have a good sounding room, but you can dump. You can easily spend 10000 bucks trying to make a room sound flat enough to really know what you're hearing. But then again, you can get used to spaces and there are also other things you can, you can get to put on your speakers that compensate for whatever low end or issues you have in your room or whatever. But headphones are the fastest way. I'm going way too deep into this, aren't I? Yeah. That was intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of numbers and gear and product yeah. names. Okay, so there's that. And then the next question... Um, we'll both answer this. This is from um, my pal from songwriting class, another Viola fella, Isaac Meza Music. Who are some of your all-time favorite songwriters, artists, and mixing engineers? And who was your biggest musical influence growing up? So, man. That you're not too embarrassed to mention. <laughs> yeah, the growing up one brings <laughs> up the embarrassing ones. So favorite songwriters, I would say... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put songwriters and artists kind of mash them together. Definitely Sting. Um, I would say the early Sting solo albums, but, but especially The Police also. That was probably, he's probably the, the artist that inspired me to sing and write songs more than any other back in when I started doing that around 18, 19 years old. I just loved his his sense of there was always this balance of emotion, vulnerability and intellect. There was and his ability lyrically to be poetic yet direct yet have, you know, a little bit of sarcasm sometimes too. And then musically there's a, there's a dark dissonance to what he did in those days, you know, that he kind of brought, um, there was that reggae thing going on a little bit in, the police, but there was more, I think, of a darker classical edge to what he did mixed with that voice and those intervallic melodies that just were badass, singing high and powerful. And um, then U2, I think, and Bono as a singer, like the best of the U2 songs, like, or at least the ones that I like the best, which are them, you know, Joshua Tree type stuff. Right, right, right. Peter Gabriel also, the So album. Um, you're going to steal all and mine <laughs> and then Jeff Buckley was huge after that um, for just somebody who pushed the boundaries of just pure passion and incredible singing and um, 
his music exists completely out of time for me. Like if you throw that record on, you don't know what era it was made in. Sometime after the 70s is all you could say if I just put it on. Um, Chris Cornell, for sure. Mm. Mainly his first solo album, Euphoria Morning. I started there and then I went back to Soundgarden and was like, ooh, I love some of the Soundgarden stuff. And then a small number of the Audio Slave songs, but that one record. So Jeff Buckley, Grace, Chris Cornell, Euphoria Morning. Are, those are my, and then Sting, maybe the Soul Cages. Those three records are like my Desert Island records. Uh, Ten Sumner's Tales for me. Yeah. Really? That yeah. one's great too. I like Soul Cages because it's dark. It's all about his dad dying. There's something about that record. Um, anyway, so then uh, I also love Rufus Rainwright. Great singer, great songwriter. Um, what's another one? What's another one? Those are the those are the core ones, man. What about you? Oof. Um, my first go to be Glenn Phillips of Toad the Wet Sprocket. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, just is that, that a, a recent love that has become like an all time fave, or have you always? What's no, I, I bought every Toad record when they came out. Um, this is uh, like 91, I believe, is when Walk it kind of hit. O- Walk on the Ocean was their first hit. And then Dulcinea, I love that record. <clears throat> That's like their second or third record. Yeah, I think that was like 93 maybe. Um, and then I think by 97 they were done. That was their last album. And then um, fell off the face of the earth as far as I was concerned. And then possibly... I'd say within the last three years, mm-hmm. um, I've discovered all the solo Glenn stuff that he had been doing mm. post Toad, um, and uh, it's you know thank God for the internet you know to have access to all that. Yeah, because um, he's very much a niche singer songwriter now. Yeah, but it was always always I think omnipresent in my head as far as his the haunting melodies and the subject matter and the depth of of the um the lyrical poetry yeah um, he's just solid man timeless yeah it's great and he's in the tradition of the classic singer songwriter too which i, yeah. I kind of like i'm going to see him that. tomorrow night i know i driving, never responded to you dang it driving up to santa barbara and, <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, i think that was my first go to and then and then as you were naming all of the sort of uh classics yeah, but they were they were that time period too, where we were like when our friendship was yeah. first starting, and we we were all kind of into that stuff together. But I'm thinking before that, and it sounds really weird, but like John Denver, he's one of the greats, man. He and, gets a bad rap, kind of. But and as far as artists, um, I don't know how much percentage she actually contributed to songwriting, but Karen Carpenter. Oh, yeah. Going that I mean those are the the ones I grew up with. I remember yeah. my mom listening to those eight tracks and and her old Cadillac. Yep. And uh, and then even even now it's a guilty pleasure. Like I'll put on a Carpenter's record or really? a John Denver record. Yeah, <laughs> it's just amazing. And even watching some of that stuff on YouTube where uh, it's just a, it's a live performance mm-hmm. and it's just him and a guitar and it just nailing it. He's one of the old school greats, Just man. Nailing it, and then and then going. Is he in, a Mount, uh, Rocky Mountain High? Is that John yeah, Denver? Okay. Yeah, and uh, leaving on a on a um, jet plane. Your jet plane, and and uh, which was didn't he write covered, the monkeys covered by? No, that's Neil Diamond. No, that's Neil Diamond. I throw Neil Diamond in there too. 
<laughs> I always get them screwed up. Yeah, so all these guilty pleasures like Neil Diamond, um, uh, John Denver, Karen Carpenter. Um, I think from a from an artist standpoint, like that, I, I would say those affected me. I don't know if influenced is right. Um, mm. Certainly, Glenn is an influence, but yeah. um, influence would be. Uh, I mean, everybody you named, like the Ten Sumner's Tales coming out was like changed my world. That was like, all right, yeah. And I've always been a fan of the Police. Um, yep. Okay, now let's go guilty pleasure. We're both huge Rush fans from way back. And for some reason, there's embarrassment that comes with that because it's nerdy, but they were a huge influence on me in starting to play drums. And then I think that when you think about the the police and Rush coming together, you get this uh, this compositional aesthetic that's like things are arranged, but things are also a little loose and punky. There's a rock element, but there's also a sense of of things fitting together and almost a classical. Cause that was Neil Peart, you know, like he played every every time he played Tom Sawyer, it was all the same notes, composed, all the same, feel, yeah. very composed. And when you're a young drummer, it's like especially from that era, it really appeals to you because it's just so it's all the big drum set and all that stuff. But um, what I find really interesting is that Neil Peart talks about his approach to drumming, and he's like, I never step on the vocals. And ever since then, when I go back and listen to Rush, you think of him as a super busy drummer, but he's never, he always does it in the cracks. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this while you're, while you're just saying that, is that I think because he composed what he played, he got away with playing a ton of notes where in a situation where you're, you're, you're Line improvising. Handle, yeah. yeah, if you're improvising like a Stuart Copeland and you're, you're play, when you play a lot of notes, you would characterize it as he's playing a lot of notes. And I never thought of Neil Peart as, okay, he's, he's playing a lot, a lot of notes because mm. it's composed in such a way where there's no, there's no accidents. Like he's deliberately put that there for this reason and it lines up with the bass part here and then the vocal comes in. It's all... Yeah, it's not Mitch Mitchell. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's a better example than Stuart <laughs> Copeland. Um, yeah, it's... it's yeah, because you get the sense when a drummer's busy, it's almost like they're just they get bored and they decide to be busy, and it doesn't matter what's going on musically. They're just like, oh well, I just kind of feel like playing a lot right now. Especially like at a live gig, you can it's easy to be guilty of that. But um, like Carter Beaufort is a really musical drummer who there was a period of time when that first Dave Matthews record came out, or technically the second record, Under the Table and Dreaming, where it was an influence because it had. It had a lot of police. It had a lot of singer-songwriter. It had a little bit of that arranged thing and had that Cajun kind of influence with the violin. And Carter was a pretty busy drummer, but more in the busy in the sense that he was kind of always goofing around. Right. Always like, like always being playful. The thing that really hit me about Dave Matthews Band when that came out, um, in fact, you, you showed me, before that album broke, you showed me, um, was it called These Two Things or Just Two Things? Yeah, one of those. It was the first album. Yeah, with the peace sign hidden in the little... The schooner? Yeah. <laughs> That's a mall rats reference, sorry. Um, but yeah, it had the uh, the pixelated um, novelty yeah. picture on the front. Um, yeah, I found that record in the listening station at Tower Records before it blew up. Yeah. I was like, what is this? That was crazy. I remember when you showed that to me. We were in, we were in a parking lot, I think at like Fry's Electronics or something. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, uh, I love the parameters. Like, there's no electric guitar on this album. Mm-hmm. And there's something super cool about that. Yeah, especially at that time. It was like 94. Yeah, it's like, wow, that entertained me for, you know, 45 to 50 minutes and no electric guitars. Right. Yeah, that was... They're a good band. Um, okay. Honorable mention, I would say for some more... There's definitely lots of Radiohead stuff I love. Coldplay has written some amazing songs. I like Chris Stapleton. Um, Sam Phillips is an artist I love. She's she's a great kind of off the beaten path singer songwriter. I've never heard you mention her before. Yeah, there's, I've I've, I've uh, I have a few albums that I bought early '90s. Sam Phillips. There's an album. She used to be married to T Bone Burnett. It's a great producer. And he uh, he produced her record called A Boot and a Shoe. And it's such a great record. It's just earthy and warm and and delicate. There's string quartet on it, but there's something about it that the drummers, I think there's two drummers on some, Jay Bellarose and Jim Keltner. And it's like maracas and they're playing really quiet, but the drums are huge sounding. So it's like this quiet, massive thing. And the songs are real. Are we awesome. talking about the same sample? I just want to make sure. Like the indelible wow. Like is that what it's called? That album? I don't know. Like early nineties, right? She used to be named Leslie Phillips. She used to be a Christian artist. And then she changed her name to Sam Phillips. Could be talking about somebody else. Could be. Because I've never heard you mention. She's blonde. She actually was did, has done a little acting. She was in Die Hard Two or something as a terrorist. Well. Yeah. Maybe it's different. Song I think the song I'm thinking of is uh What Do I Do? Yeah, I think that's her. And it's off Indelible Wow. Yeah. I think it's like a it's like a fuchsia looking album cover. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's the same okay. Same artist. Yeah. Interesting. I went and saw her live and she had a string quartet playing with her that had played on a record and I that's the string quartet I ended up hiring to play on Murder Yesterday. Grabbed her string quartet. Paid the price too. Is that the same group that did uh The Section Quartet, they're called. Mm. But um, okay, so then shall we? Oh, mixing engineers. Uh, big fan of the kind of the the big staples. I love um, Chris Lord Algae is a great mixing engineer. He he's he's almost like a trendy cliche answer um, because there was a while there where he, I think it would be like late nineties throughout the early two thousands where. He had a sort of, he had such a strong aesthetic and people were going to him to get that, that he almost became a parody of himself. Like he, and you found, I, everybody found out just by listening to the records, but that he was using like the same kick sample on every rock record and the same snare sample that he had made. So he just replaced everybody's samples, but that sounded so good and it became the sound of rock. But, you know, he, for example, mixed, you know, Green Day, American Idiot, and a million other things. But he's also mixed country albums and and I've had a chance to work with him maybe four different times on records, like Jesse McCartney record, a couple Jeremy Camp records he mixed on, um, and then the Cherry Bomb record. And it's really cool to see him work, big SSL. He's great. Jack Joseph Puig who did some of the mixing on my Fallborn record. Love him. I don't go deep into the B 
being a fanboy of engineers. I yeah, guess. I don't think I could. It's more I just I like certain sounds and certain records. Yeah, I, I I know those producers that I've always been drawn to their sense of aesthetic. Yeah, mainly just from the Rush era, like the yeah the Terry Brown. Oh right. Yeah, it's like there's and you and you heard it change. Like they changed yeah. producers and then boom, all yeah. of a sudden it's Peter Collins, right? Peter Collins. Peter Collins. And then I think Peter Collins did the Queensryche record as well, didn't he? Sounds or familiar. My, yeah, Empire. Empire. Yeah. And it's what's funny is going back now and listening to those albums, they sound small compared to the Terry Brown stuff from Moving mm-hmm. Pictures and Permanent Waves. It's yeah. all context, man. They, yeah, they sound small, but they're very space. There's lots of reverbs, and right? They sound huge when you're listening to them, yeah. and then you put something else on, and it's bigger, and you're like, "Oh, weird!" It's like an optical, an audio illusion. I, I mean, another for one. Me, I was just oh. gonna say that for me, like the the benchmark for just putting headphones on and listening to something, it's moving pictures. That record sounds great. It's just when limelight hits and that floor tom comes in off the guitar. I wish I could God. go back in a time machine and just turn up the low end on the bass and then remaster with a little more subs. And then... <laughs> you, grew, you grew to have an opinion. <laughs> I know, exactly. No, it's really good sounding. And then another honorable mention, I would say Spike Stent is another great mixer. Okay. But the... Uh, oh, there's another thing you said. Biggest musical influence growing up. Oh, and then off. Oh, I didn't want to forget to mention this. Thomas Newman is one of my favorite music mm-hmm. composers ever, 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 yep. ever, ever. Yep. Maybe I mean, if I if that was if I could pick one composer just to listen to for the rest of my life, I would probably choose Thomas Newman. Especially the Shawshank Redemption soundtrack, Road to Perdition. Oh, those two soundtracks are unbelievable. Finding that, Nemo. Finding Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> Such uh, you know. Greats. Um, uh, Wally, six, six feet under. Six uh, feet under. Yeah. yeah, he wrote the theme to that. Yeah, that's great. He's ridiculous. So he, to me, he's the sound of like music reaching the highest spiritual level of just holy crapness. Like when I'm going through something, or I remember times earlier in life going through breakups and just throwing Thomas Newman this on, and just like driving through the canyon, like <clears throat> being all bummed out and thinking about life. Okay, so next question. Oh, Nikki Bird, what's up? What's more common for you, writing music first or writing lyrics first? Do you have a favorite way to write? All right. More common for me, I would say music first. And from there, I'd say like intention first. It's like... Do you mumble, mumble, babble? I mumble, babble. Yeah, Yeah. I try to like get the subconscious working. So I'll just kind of come up with something musically or have a melody, but usually kind of both at the same time-ish, and then press record and try to just disappear into into improvisation. And while improvising, I just l- let myself suck. So I'll kind of explore through even singing, singing poorly or just kind of goof, like just going around and seeing what's possible emotionally with, um, I find there's a lot of emotive power in, in the vowel sounds and tonalities and range. So I'll just kind of go around and look and find. And and then if I feel like something happened, I'll go back and listen to it. And often there'll be some words that are actually matching the intention or something. I'll have, I'll have said something often. And then 
lyrics will start to come from that. And then it's all, I love Stephen King has a great um, way of describing the creative process that really matches what I'm trying to describe in his book called On Writing. So it's super awesome. It's like his only, you know, nonfiction book. Um, and it kind of, it's like a biography mixed with how he, his process. And he, he talks about the creative process as being like excavating um, a skeleton. So you're like, you're digging in the dirt and you're like, oh, there's a bone right there. And then you dig more and you use the larger tools at first. And then the closer you get to the skeleton, you start to get that, that like the toothbrush that's and you start great. to like, that's great. And then you might find that there's only a leg bone and you're like, oh, that's all that was. But other times you're like, holy crap, it's an entire Tyrannosaurus Rex that I've just unearthed. And that'd be like your ultimate opus. But it's the perfect analogy. It is. Because you really like, are uncovering can you, something. Can you attach, um, I think this is really important um, for that question. Can you attach a timeline to that? So this whole thing you're talking about, and I've mm. seen you do this in a day yeah. where it's like there's nothing. And then by 5 p.m., it's mixed, mastered, and in my <laughs> inbox. <laughs> so it's like, is that normal? What What's the normal process? I would say that's normal. It, normal is probably something like five or six hours. And it's a, this, the song is either everything but the bridge is written or maybe the whole thing and it's recorded 80 80 to 90% and sometimes that one day which would be maybe a longer day it's done especially like on the way out record there're a handful of songs that are like the one day and it was the mix from that day also that's probably a result of doing it so much and trusting instinctual things but I think it also just is, happens to be my creative process is um, trying to turn on that improvisational thing and let go and be really decisive. And then, the, but there are definitely other songs, a pretty sizable percentage of ones that I'll toil over or that I'll write. What's half the, of it? What would be the, the average timeline there? I would say. It's still for the writing. It rarely goes beyond like two days of writing. Yeah, that's what I. That's what I figured. That's like hitting it hard and then revisiting it once. Right. But it, I just feel like you're not digging into the subconscious if you're thinking too much about it and second guessing and rewriting and right. The, the, all the rewriting I've done tends to be more when somebody else is asking for something or we're trying to write a hit or when we're trying to fit something into a box and it takes a lot of second guessing and a lot and we're getting notes or, but when it comes to expressing myself, once I learned how to do it and had gotten hundreds of songs under my belt, it's become a more concise process of and do you cutting out the fat. Do you make uh, a reserve time where that is your sole purpose until you've completed whatever the tasks are, like let's say you're making an album. Do you, just trying to get a picture of, are you writing and then you're off to Home Depot to buy a hammer and then you're doing some other thing around the house <laughs> or, or do, you, do you have a, a sequestering like process where it's like, I'm making an album so there's, 
there's no um, practical sort of home life happening. Like you're in the studio and mm. you're, you finish the album or how does that work for you? Are you able yeah. to, to turn that on and off? Well, I mean, I would say it's usually been a sequestered thing. And a lot of that has to do with how I worked really hard to make my life so that I could have in my studio was near my house and I could kind of go out, you know, into my own space and just basically lock myself in there and, and go as long as I needed to go until it was done. And I think if there were more distractions, then that would make that hard to let go and it'd be a process that would be hard to dive, to allow myself to dive into. Um, and then I've also created my studio in such a way and set it up so that nothing, nothing is a long setup. Like I've really made an attempt to make sure that if I need, if I want to record drums, it's a few patch cables, maybe setting up a mic or two, but it's kind of ready to go so that I don't have to get out of that creative or that more abstract headspace and think too much. It's kind of set it, it's, I'm ready to go. And then, but I will say that I really, I love the idea of writing and then going like, okay, I've written the verse and chorus. I'm going to go start recording the song now so that I can be inspired by the sound of it. I don't segregate those two processes. I don't go like, I need to write the song and finish it, then record it. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, I got it. I'm going to I'm gonna actually do a, the drum take for the entire song and just improvise something on the bridge and then write to my improvised drums. Hmm. Or if, I'm, if it's a guitar song, maybe I'll write the bridge on piano. Like I try to s- swirl everything together because I know the end result is going to be one thing. It's going to be a sound, a production, the song, all integrated into one process. So if I or one final result. So if I can make the process as integrative as possible, then it's going to feel like this song couldn't sound any different. It couldn't possibly have a different drum groove. It couldn't, whatever. A lot of times when you hear songs that are written, say, as like an acoustic guitar song and that's it, and then you hear the production, there's a disjointed quality to it where it's like, oh, well, it could have been that sound or it could have been that sound. But if I find if you integrate the processes your choice for the drum sound is so driven by the song that it becomes inseparable, almost like a classical piece where the arrangement is as much the the composition as the composition right. is right. the arrangement or whatever. Yeah, hearing hearing that answer and how you do sort of sequester yourself, um, it's super apparent. I was thinking, like I was imagining while you were speaking the creation of Way Out. Mm-hmm. And there, there's something about that album that sounds like it was recorded in one session, mm-hmm. just straight through. Um, I don't know what what that is, or if that's something that was. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's 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 deliberate because it's an album, but yeah. but the everything belongs. There's no, there's nothing that sticks out. There's no anomaly. In that album, it's it's super fascinating to hear. Thanks, that. man. Yeah, it's super cool. And that, and and it's not saying that the that it would be necessarily bad if there were anomalies on an album. It's just hearing you describe the process. Um, sounds like an exact description of what I imagine way out being. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because the um, I don't know if it's interesting, but it makes me think of the fact that that album was 
I'm going to listen to the music that's just in me at the moment I sit down to write. I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to think about what I want to say or even what I'm going through. I'm not going to intellectualize anything. I'm just going to sit down and let whatever's in there come out and then follow the idea until it's done and then let it be done. And that concept was something that I took from the Philip Glass documentary. It's called Glass where he, you know, poetry is about speaking, dancing is about movement, music is about listening. He said, I don't think about music. I listen to it and write it down. So I thought about, oh, what what would be my process if I took that simplistic of philosophy and just said, it isn't about what I want to do. It isn't about any sort of thought process other than sitting down and going like, like right now it'd be like, and I would just take that. That's the first thing that came to my head and I would just find something, follow it, follow that. It's just literally, it's, it's almost like I'm just going to drive out to the desert, park my car and go on a hike. As opposed to I'm going to sit down, call up a travel agent. Decide where should, where should I go and, and plan it all. It's just total free form. Whereas my other albums were are more about here's a one and a half to two year chunk of my life. Here's all the songs that happened, and I want. I think I mentioned this in the other podcast, but I want to have gone through kind of a little bit of everything in that period, and that feels like an album to me. I've been super bummed out. I've felt extreme joy. I've I've gone through all the different core things I can go through. And then now, okay, that's a period of my life. Here it is represented in music on to the next period. Right. I, w- I wanted to touch on the Philip Glass documentary. Yeah, it's so good. I haven't watched it in a couple of years. Um, just a note. I, I was only able to find it on YouTube. Oh, um, I it's on iTunes. I couldn't find, is it on iTunes? It is, yeah. Uh, maybe back then I wasn't, I wasn't as knowledgeable with the, Oh. programming on iTunes or maybe it wasn't on there back then this is like maybe three years ago I think I watched it hmm. um, two or three years ago and but I couldn't find it anywhere else so if I highly recommend people check that out yeah it's it's fascinating in multiple ways just to see a person who um, as much as I connected to it I also felt like I was watching an alien as well because the very beginning of the documentary he goes I don't care what anybody thinks about my music. You know, there's plenty of music out there. If you don't like mine, go listen to the the Beatles or whatever. There's plenty of great, like, I don't, I've never had a problem worrying about what other people think. I'm like, wow. (laughs) I don't sit around wondering what people are going to think of the thing I'm making, but once I make it, I definitely care if people like it. So his, the way his ego is constructed is like an alien to me. Like when, when you watch it, you'll, and even when he does a lot of film co- composing, so there's that part in there where Woody Allen is saying that Philip Glass is one of the few composers that if you tell him something's not working, he just goes, okay, fine, and then he'll give you three new cues the next day. Whereas most composers will be like, you don't like that, and try to fight for it, or him and Ha about having to redo something. And Philip Glass is just, I think he takes that, I just listen to music to heart, and he's like, okay, you don't like that, I'll use it for something else, I'll just listen to music again, and then write it down and hopefully you'll like that. He's just such a free spirit, but he's also an endless wanderer, you know, like spiritually he's like trying out different religions as if they're outfits in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Highly intellectual guy. 
but he also has a lifestyle that's sort of integrated too. Like he, they show him with his kids and I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. That cabin scene. I remember we were talking about that cabin scene. Yeah. That's crazy. That's cool. All right. There's a few more questions. Let's hit them. Um, what's up, Caitlin? Also known as at Aselda underscore music. Do you feel that instrumentation slash harmonic slash melodic foundation, the instrumentation, harmonic, melodic foundation of a song needs to support the lyrics or vice versa? Which do you start with when trying to convey a specific emotion? So this connects to the earlier question, but so do I feel like the musical aspects and sonic aspects of something need to support the lyrics? The answer is yes and no. It's completely case by case. I think they're, it's the gut feeling of whether or not you want to create juxtaposition or um, yeah, there's, there's a, cohesiveness. There's a marching world, I think, parallel to this, and that is visual first, music first, or even just, right. just in the music realm, battery first or pit first. And it, it really is, it's just, it's contextual. It, I've done it every possible way and been extremely happy with the results using every possible method. So I think it's just finding the method that works for that particular mm-hmm. thing you're trying to convey. The main thing I think is self-confidence and following your instincts because there is no right or wrong way. Um, but there probably is a writer or there, there probably is a way that you as an artist would gravitate towards more often than not. So just because I sat here saying that lyrics tend to follow music and, and, you know, a subconscious style of trying to lose myself in improvisation, um, by no means am I saying that that's the right way to do it. Or, or that if, if, if somebody who likes writing lyrics first, I mean, I go back and forth on this because a song isn't a poem. A, a song is music with lyrics. And so I tend to think that if you do start with a f- completely finished written lyric and then try to make it into music, that it can tend to be square peg, round hole, you, you can tend to have issues and you can kind of hear it in music when people do that because certain words will clunk melodically, but um, I don't know. Like, but, like Africa by Toto? <laughs> yeah. There's some clunkers in there. Serengeti. Serengeti. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, there's some, I was laughing too because there's some Rush albums that are, that are just like awful. When That's it comes. a perfect example actually oh. of why of when that can go wrong is that, you know, Neil Peart, Peart wrote, he handed Getty the lyrics. Well, I didn't start noticing it until the nineties. And yeah, because you go uh, back and listen to the eight, the seventies and eighties stuff. It works. And then they hit the nineties. I wonder like, what went wrong. Like, Whoa, that didn't fit at all. Like I bet it had to do with lyric in there. I bet it had to do with Neil getting deeper into his literature he just started probably look, paving new territory and it was just less singable. <laughs> right. I don't know. But yeah, there's no right or wrong way for that. But Just don't I, use Serengeti and you're good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
But when you say, you know, the founda- the, the the harmonic instrumentation, melodic foundation needs to support the lyrics, yeah, I think there there should be some sort of marriage there that that you feel. It's it's intent because it could be ironic or juxtaposed Completely. or it could be in in alignment. Yeah. So what was your intent? If you do something, if something happens that wasn't your intent, um, again, like the, like the, the gear, like mm-hmm. that's your red flag. And it's chicken or the egg. Here's a perfect example. Um, a, a recent um, session I had with a student, this came up where what happened was the music was written, the melodies were written, and then the lyrics were written and rewritten. And where the lyric ended up started to feel pretty sarcastic, confrontational, and a little bit dark. And the initial music under it had been written and it felt pretty hopeful and 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 almost inspirational. So as the lyric morphed, all of a sudden the music started to feel like it was the wrong music. But since it was kind of like, well, here's our music, and then we could have just accepted it. And I... I was like wondering, like something's wrong right now with this chorus. And I kind of did that 30,000 foot way zoom out. And I'm like, oh, there's a complete mismatch here. And I just brought it up and said, is that on purpose? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it almost feels, it, it doesn't match up. And the result is irony. And I don't know if we want that. So we ended up changing the chords to kind of feel darker and it ended up working better. So I guess just awareness of how it works how it fits is being able to zoom in and zoom out is just a huge skill. Ooh, Ian Grom. What's up, man? Late to the party. Wah, wah. Uh, I would have asked. Oh, you are asking. What are some of your favorite surprise twists and form or chord progressions that made a famous song extra memorable or impactful to you? Ooh, so something influential. Everything... Radiohead's ever written. Mm. Yeah. With a little slight bit of sarcasm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would Ian, say that... Ian, you got to get on this this podcast. Yeah, we man. Get you over here. We need you over here. For take two. Well, yeah. once you said Radiohead, one thing came to mind, which was the beautifully sly way that, that Karma Police chord progression goes in and out of two, possibly three different keys. Can you hand me that guitar? Um, Here's my dog. I love that. And that's something that in Sam Phillips's music I really love is that she she has a way of jumping in and out of keys um, that if you get yourself in, the, in a great melodic mindset is super cool. So Karma Police is like... this like and then it's not in the same key and then um, happy um, 
change. So it takes you all these really cool places in that chord progression. Yeah, Radiohead is one. And then rhythmically, any of us who are drummers who were alive in the 80s know that Spirits in the Material World Dude, that song screwed us all up. It's all because it's not... It's the fill at the beginning. Exactly. He does it. You know he does it on purpose. So that I, I always one. heard that as uh, as uh, wait. One. <laughs> Which there? is not that's not where it is. Uh, yeah. No, you sang it right, I think, just now. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's that's, that's, that's it. what it is. Oh, I can't hear it like that. <laughs> I mean, how old is that when that came out? I was like eight. I don't think yeah, it matters. Nine? I think it would happen to us today. But my too. poor eight, nine-year-old brain got got duped by by the Stewart. It's just yeah. not fair. No, it's not. But that's influenced me because it's nice. It's. <laughs> It's nice to, when you can, when you're not just trying to confuse a listener, but you're actually trying to make them feel unsettled and like they don't quite know where they're to put their feet because emotionally that's what you want to bring them to. You know, In the Air Tonight does that with the uh, programmed right, yeah. drum beat at the very beginning. Yep. And you don't know where the downbeat is until, at least I didn't. Mm-hmm. As a, I mean, I think I was 10 when that came out. Um I didn't know where the downbeat was until he started singing. Both of those are the drummers. Yeah, the damn drummers. Drummers fall. Yeah. Um, hey, just a quick follow-up to, to Ian, or maybe um, just a clarification. Um, how, would you, how would you answer that question in the context of, of like a, a popular song? Like something that isn't Radiohead or Sam Phillips, but something that's more mainstream. <laughs> you know, there's a cheesy one that, comes to mind because I remember wondering what was going on and learning it on guitar but it's uh, a famous country song and it's called it's by Lone Star it's Amazed Baby I'm amazed by you that song it changes keys in in like three times I think and it's it's very much like Def Leppard style like key changes Um, but that one is is like just it it keeps just going yeah no yeah yeah so check check out that song baby I'm like I think it's just called amazed but that one's funny but I would say the entire Euphoria Morning album Chris Cornell is littered with surprises that just inspire me because it just it feels like how you feel when you're wondering whether or not life is even real. And you're dealing with the darker moments in life. That album is such a representation of that, and especially songs like "Follow My Way" you know, and um, "Steel Rain" and "Disappearing One." Those songs have chord progressions that are just genius, and a lot of that is owed to Alan Johannes. Oh yeah, guitar player. Yeah, I love his stuff. Um, I was thinking of um, <clears throat> as a kid. I used to listen to uh, Walk the Line. Um, Johnny Cash does that for me. Mm. How it just keeps shifting. Yep. 
I use it as, as an example in my songwriting class. Yeah. It's, it's, it does every range. It starts right. the and last chorus. the note out. Yeah. It's, it, mm. it's, so, it's so hip and cool and unexpected and, and just a folk country tune. This might not be correct, but it starts um, an octave up where the, the main note he's hitting is a C. It goes down a fifth, back up a third, um, and then I think down another fifth and then ends an octave lower. But you don't really realize it because it's like stepping like that. But if you just click the end of the song and then click the beginning, it's like, yeah. holy crap, he's taking us through an entire octave and I didn't even know. Yeah. Whereas the last one's... I think that's probably... I know there's no real real surprise chord in there. Because but, you're mine. <laughs> <laughs> but that one always did it for me. I'm like, man, that is freaking brilliant. That's it is super cool. And it's super sly too. Like it, it's, you can just be uh, a complete, you know, musical uh, midget and yeah. and not even know that that stuff's happening. Just enjoy the song. It doesn't, it doesn't take you for a spin. You yeah. Know? But it's the so ultimate. It's cool. I use it as an example of contrast purely with, with the range of the vocal because everything else in the song is like pretty, it's like doesn't change. One thing that does. It's almost like he started at the end and went, how low is the lowest note I can sing? All right, here's the key of the song. Let's start an octave up. <laughs> no. Nah. All right. Is there, are there, is there, okay, let me look at Broken City, the other Instagram, because I, I sent out a, put out the bat yeah, Next time we're in Brea, we'll have to uh, kidnap Ian. Yeah. Bring him in. I had laryngitis recently. I'm not deliberately talking low. Okay, yeah, we missed here. a week too. I had to, uh, I had a little Nothing. evacuation deal at home with the uh, the rains that we had, and uh, we had a fire in in August, and there were mudslide warnings. And whoa, yeah, because there's no vegetation. So, are you on. saying that you've seen fire and you've seen rain? <laughs> <laughs> nope, I didn't see anything. I saw, I saw possibly a. Uh, You've been notified of fire and you've been yeah. notified of rain. I think they were just being extremely proactive. and uh, But we, we bailed out for a few days and missed a podcast. Um, but hopefully we're, we're back on track to do these things weekly. Yes, we are. There she is. You better tell people you're holding a dog. That's going to sound really weird. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For those of you listening, I'm holding, holding a dog, a canine unit. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon with more guests and more long meandering conversations about stuff. Good night and good morning and be good. <laughs>